0: Wonder what you want in life more than anything else. That song also impacted me just in a fresh way this morning. The writer said, "I want to have a heart that is weaned from from earthly things, from earthly pulses. I want to have a heart that just pumps for Jesus Christ." went on to, to ask God to take the dimness of his soul away. Lord, I'm not looking for any spectacular revelation of who you are, or no lightning bolts, none of that. I just simply want to have a clearer vision of you. And he goes on to say that I need to check two things in my life. I need to check the rising doubt, and I need to check the rebel sigh And then he says, Lord, I just I want one holy passion to completely fill every bit of me. That just stood out to me in a new way. We sing that song from time to time, and then we go on about our lives and don't always embody what we sing. God help us with that. In John chapter 6, Jesus was speaking about some very deep and difficult truths. And it was hard for the people to grasp. And as a result of that, the scripture says that many went back and walked with him no more. And you can imagine the, the pain, the frustration that caused Jesus. In his flesh, how that, how that really bit at him. And he turns to his disciples and he says, will you also go away? And there's Peter with another one of his bold confessions when he says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life and we believe and are sure that you are the Christ or the Messiah, the son of the living God. Do you realize that what Peter was confessing was actually a very dangerous confession? In fact, in John chapter 8, we read that the Jews had just agreed that if you confess that Jesus is the Christ, you'll be excommunicated (laughs) or thrown out of the synagogue. And Peter made this bold declaration that, Lord, we believe and we are sure that you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. That's dangerous words. And yet it came from deep within. And we read a similar confession in our lessons this morning. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 for a text this morning. In fact, We're going to start with verses verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, but we're going to look at verse uh, of chapter 1 and 2, pretty much all of chapter 1 and 2 in Hebrews this morning. It's a beautiful book in the Bible, actually one of my favorites. The title for the message this morning is Better Than the Angels. Better than the Angels. What could be better than angels? Okay, you know, sometimes we go sing at the nursing home and we sound terrible, and it doesn't matter how bad you sound, the old folks will still say you sound just like angels. You know, what could be better than angels? And yet, the Hebrews writer says that there is something much better than the angels. And we'll get to that in a moment. But the book of Hebrews was written at a very strategic time in history. Uh, The temple was still standing, sacrifices were still being offered. But in just a very few years, not only the city of Jerusalem, but also the temple would be completely destroyed. And the Jewish nation would be scattered, including Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. And so these were politically unstable times. These were changing times. And in the midst of all of this, the believers the new believers in Jesus Christ were tempted to abandon their faith and to slip back into the old the old familiarity of their ways of doing things to go back to the old rules and regulations of Judaism i mean it was really it was really upset the church basket as it were in many ways and just just put yourself in their shoes. Think about how church was so different all of a sudden. Think of how church culture was before Jesus Christ. Think of all the doing. Think of all the sacrificing. Think of all the blood and the mess and all that went with that. And then think of when Jesus Christ and came, one, uh, died once for all, how that changed everything. And so sometimes I think we're a little bit hard on, on the Jews on the Jews coming through this, this, into this new dispensation. And yet I just say, put yourself in their shoes. So when things get tough, when things get difficult, when big things happen, we tend to go back to what was comfortable before. Think of a little baby. You know, maybe you finally got them to no longer suck their thumb, to hang on to their little blankie. But then you move to a new house, and Johnny starts sucking his thumb again. Johnny needs his blankie. It's that type of a thing. And so the, the Jewish Christians were going through a similar situation where things were unstable. This was an unsettling time, and, and they were tempted to slip back into, I need to do something, I need to do something, and on to all those I say the book of Hebrews targets those believers. That's what it was about. And so one of the messages that we find in Hebrews is this, that in these changing times, don't put your trust in the things that will pass away, but put your trust in the eternal, unchanging truth of God's Word. Or in these unsettling times, when everything else is falling apart around you, you can be sure. You can be sure. Why? Well, the Hebrews writer goes on to write, that we have a hope which is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. We have a kingdom which cannot be moved. Speaking of this new, this new relationship with Jesus Christ that we can have through, through his death on the cross. Now, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and the gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Now, Hebrews is referred to as the book of better things. Better things. In fact, we find the word better 13 times In the book of Hebrews, once again, it's contrasting, contrasting the new with the old. This is the way it used to be done. And then there's Jesus Christ. Now there's a better way. This is the book of Hebrews. And so in this in this book, we read about a better hope. A better testament, a better covenant, better promises, better sacrifices, better substance, better country, a better resurrection, a better thing, and better things. (laughs) There's a lot of better things in the book of Hebrews. One of them, perhaps the greatest of them, is that Jesus Christ is better than the angels. Better than the angels. And we have this from the very beginning of the book. Verse 2 says, "For if the word spoken by angels For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast in every transgression, speaking more of the sin of commission, a sin that we commit, and disobedience, speaking more of the sin of omission, Something that we know we should do, but we omit doing it. If they received a just recompense of reward. Okay, so it's, it's talking here about the word of the angels. And it's implying that this word of the angels was good, and it was sure, it was steadfast. And it was something that if you did not heed the word of the angels... It led to punishment. But notice the word if. If, it's one of those situations where if this was so good, how much better is this? And that's what the writer is trying to, to get across to us today. So if the word of the angels was that good and led to a punishment if you didn't do it, how much greater is another word, is another word. Well, what word is that? What word is that? And we already have reference to it here in verse 1. We should give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. And then verse 3 speaks about this salvation that was first spoken by the Lord. Now, let us think for just a moment about this thing of angels. Angels. In fact, here again, there's angels mentioned, I think, 13 different times in the book of Hebrews. Eleven of those 13 times are in chapters 1 and 2. Okay, 11 times, I think six times in chapter 1, five times in chapter 2. What's the big deal about angels? You know, the writer here who, there is some debate about who the writer is. I personally believe it's the Apostle Paul, but that's not our discussion this morning. But the writer here could have just simply opened the book and said, God is. Hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. Chapter 2. Therefore, we should give the more earnest heed so that we do not slip away. Chapter (laughs) 3. I mean, he could have, but but he doesn't. He, He expounds on so many other things. I mean, that's the thrust. That's really the thrust. But yet in the middle of that thrust, he explains and expounds on some other very important things that the Jewish people needed to hear in order to say, okay, yes, I'm with you. He had to lay that foundation. And the one was in reference to angels. Now, angels, I understand, were a very important part of the Jewish religion, primarily because it appears thousands of angels assisted in giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, Scripture would cause us to believe that not only were angels present at the giving of the law, but they also had a role to play in that. Now, let's just notice this very briefly. Uh, Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Keep your finger here. Deuteronomy chapter 33, and look what Moses had to say about this. I'm saying that the Jewish people held angels to a very high stand because of what they believed in the angels' connection with the giving of the law. Uh, Deuteronomy 33, and verse 2. And this is Moses speaking. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Okay? Now move to Psalm and sixty eight. Psalm sixty-eight. And verse seventeen. The chariots of God are twenty thousand, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Okay, these are, these are references that the Jewish people were very familiar with. And they helped lay a foundation for why they held angels to such a high place in their religion. Many years later, Stephen, as he was standing before the Sanhedrin, he confirmed this activity of the angels this way. He says... You received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And and that was was part of what cut to the heart of the Sanhedrin because they considered angels so important to the giving of the law and they believed that they were keepers of the law. But he said, You received the law by disposition of the angels, but you have not kept it. And it was given by angels. Now, later in Galatians, the Apostle Paul also confirms this connection between the angels and the giving of the law when he says, the law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Okay, so I'm just trying to build a foundation here for, for why the Jewish people thought so highly of the angels. And once again, we read in Hebrews 2, verse 2, that the word of the angels was steadfast and sure, and if you failed to heed it, there was due punishment. And yet, and yet, the Hebrew's writer says, there is one who is greater than the angels. There is is a word that is greater and more powerful than the word of the angels. Now, We begin chapter 2 with the word, therefore. Therefore. And so whenever we see a therefore, we need to go back and see what it is therefore. for. And in this particular instance, it points back to the beginning of chapter 1. And let me read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. And so here we are seeing a contrast between the word spoken by angels and another word. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, here it is, among whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world's who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, here it is. So, so the writer here is saying that God used to reveal himself to the people in various ways and in different times, He would reveal his will, he would reveal his word through the voice of the prophets. That's how God used to do it. But the writer is saying that God has in these last days, more recently God has chosen to reveal himself through his very own son. Dear people, this is not just any old son. The writer then goes about to describe who this son is. And it's and it's amazing. He says that this son is the heir of all things. So this is the one and only Son. This is the heir of all things. This son is the creator of the universe. In fact, John writes that all things were made by him, and without without him was oh, what does it say? All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was the creator of all things. It says here that he made the worlds. This sun is the brightness of the Father's glory. Verse 3. Or he is the radiance of God's glory. Think Think of the sun that is shining out here in our universe today. And think of the rays of that sun that are beaming from it. In other words, the rays are a very a very real part of the sun itself. And the writer here is saying that that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory. The Father being the sun, picture the Father being the the large sun and the Son, Jesus Christ, S-O-N, being the radiance, the rays that are beaming forth from that. It's amazing. In fact, in one of the Corinthians, Paul writes that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There it is. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. This Son is also the express image of the person of God. Or, this Son is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? Okay, this is the Son that the writer is talking about here. This Son is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the upholder. In fact, Paul writes in Colossians that By him all things hold together. That's this son. Psalm 33 By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. That's this this son that we're talking about here. This son is the Savior when he had by himself purged our sins. Notice, when he had by himself, (laughs) he didn't need the help of anyone else. You see, prior to Jesus Christ dying on the cross, there were many sacrifices made for sins by many, many priests. And it went on and on and on and on. But when Jesus Christ came and died, he died once for all. He did it all by himself. The scripture also says later in Hebrews that we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This son is also the conqueror. Notice it says, He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. To sit down means mission accomplished. It is complete. I've come to do your will and I have done it. You think of the joy that Jesus Christ experienced in knowing that he had completed the work of the Father. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Mission accomplished. I've done it. Can you imagine the joy that came from doing the will of the Father knowing that he went all the way Of course, not only was it for his joy, but it was also for our salvation. But to sit down at the right hand speaks of, I have conquered, I have completed. And so, the writer here is saying, this is the son. Oh yes, the word spoken by angels was sure, it was steadfast. But there is another word that trumps that. It is from one who is better than the angels, and this is the Son of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 17, we read about the transfiguration, and it says that that Jesus and several of his disciples went up on the mount, and he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured before them. And we have the instance there where Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. Now those are those were men in the past that the people were to give heed to. They were to listen to them absolutely. Their word was sure. Their word was steadfast as well. Jesus is speaking to Moses and Elijah and then there comes a voice from heaven saying, "This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him." The the thrust is there. No longer is it the word of Moses. No longer is it the word of Elijah that is so binding, that is so sure and steadfast. But there is a new word. And that is from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Listen to him. From now on, listen to him. And that is the thrust that we find here. And so, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard lest at any time we should drift away from them. Why? Why? Well, because, the God, because God's Word has come to us not merely through prophets, not merely through angels, but the Word of God has come to us through the powerful Son of God, the Superior One, Jesus Christ Himself. Let's move on here in chapter 1, and notice that Jesus Christ is so much better than the angels. So much better than the angels. I just find it fascinating. I like words. I like doing some writing. And, And the writer here doesn't just say that being made better than the angels. He doesn't even say being made much better than the angels. He says that Jesus Christ was made so much better than the angels. I just just like that extra emphasis. So much better than the angels. And first of all, we note that Jesus Christ has a better relationship. He has a better relationship. In these three points I'm giving here from chapter 1, this refers to his position with God. His position with God. In other words, he was the son of God. And we find that very clear in chapter 1. He was the son of God. But he had a better relationship. He has a better relationship. Verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Once again, we're contrasting son of God and angels, right? So much better because he has a more excellent name than the angels. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? No, he's never said that to any of the angels. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. No, he's never said that to any of the angels, but he said it to his son. Verse 6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, you notice here that the writer is going back to the Old Testament writings, which obviously that's what they had at that point. They didn't have the New Testament. I mean, they were writing the New Testament, okay? But at that point, they would simply go back to their Bible, and that was the Old Testament writings here. And so he was referencing that. And so here in chapter 1, we have seven, seven different references. So he's going back and he's verifying what he is saying from Scripture. And I still say today that the Bible is its best commentary. I mean, not that other commentaries aren't important or helpful, but, but the Bible explains itself very well. And... I just challenge you to be a student of the word and find that out for yourself. It will will give you so much joy in life as you begin to dig into the scriptures and see how two and two fit together and all of that. It really helps illuminate uh, your mind and, and gives you a better grasp of what the whole of scripture is. But here, the writer is going back to the scriptures and verifying that, yes, this is true because the scripture has already clearly said it. And so here, uh, in verse five, he quotes from Psalm chapter two, verse seven. Once again, he quotes from Second Samuel seven fourteen. Moving into verse six, he's moving back to Deuteronomy thirty two and Psalm ninety seven. Those are those are are speaking of that. They're not exact uh, exact references or exact wording, but he's using that as a A basis for for his thinking there. And so, Jesus Christ has a better relationship with God. How? Well, he has a more excellent name. It's the name Son. And God is his Father. Contrast that with the angels' relationship to God in verse 7. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. It's from Psalm 104, verse 4. So, while Jesus Christ is the Son of God, while God is his Father, angels are simply, what does it say? Spirits. Ministers. And so, here, Jesus Christ is the firstborn, the first begotten, who is worthy to be worshipped by all, even the angels. Well, next we see that Jesus Christ has a better reign than the angels. A better reign. Verse 8, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Okay, two more references here. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, and Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Speaking about this better reign, Jesus Christ has a better reign than that of the angels. It is righteous. It is eternal. It is unchanging. And then we note one more thing here in this passage. How is Jesus Christ better than the angels? Well, he has a better reward. Verses 13 and 14. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? No, he's never said that to any of the angels. But he has said that to his son, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, Are they, angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Now, once again, there's another reference here. And in verse 13, he's referencing Psalm 110, verse 1. And so here we have the picture of of the Son of God sitting at the right hand of God. Once again, a, a picture of someone who has completed the work, mission accomplished. He's sitting at the right hand of God. It is a position that is a place of honor. It is a place of power. He is pictured as the mighty conqueror. And this is a title of authority. You see, the angels are ministering at his command. Jesus Christ is so much better than the angels. You see, all along, the writer here is laying a foundation that convinces the Jewish people that the Word of Jesus Christ, in fact, Jesus Christ Himself, is so much better than the angels that they held in high esteem. Okay, moving in now to chapter 2. And we already read verses 1 through 4, but we're going to pull up here at verse 5. Jesus Christ, once again, is so much better than the angels, and in this chapter, it is... In his position with man. So in chapter 1, he's so much better than the angels in his position with God. He is the son of God. Here in chapter 2, he is so much better than the angels in his position with man. He is the son of man. And in these verses here, we see how Jesus Christ, the son of man, has identified with us in a very intimate way. He is identified with fallen mankind. Now before I read these verses, let me just notice, point out, there's at least six or seven different instances where we see Jesus Christ identifying with man. Verse 9. Who was made a little lower than the angels... Okay, I'll speak more about that later. Who was made a little lower than the angels. Now verse 11. It says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. In other words, speaking of, of Jesus Christ, the one who sanctifies, and all of us, the ones who are sanctified... We are of one family. We are one. Verse 14. He also himself likewise took part of the same. That is, he took part of flesh and blood, just like we. Verse 16. He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Verse 17. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Verse 18. He himself hath suffered so that he is able to help them. He hath suffered being tempted so that he can help us who are tempted. And it also points back to verse 9. Verse 9 where it talks about... No, actually verse 10 where it says to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. I'm just pointing out those before I read these verses, but it shows a clear identification with man. Jesus Christ is so much better than the angels in that he identifies with fallen mankind. Now, verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we are speaking? So who did he? He's The writer saying that God didn't put the world and control of the world into the hands of the angels. And then he quotes from Psalm 8. But one in a certain place testified saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? And dear people, in, that, in this reference to Psalm 8, The Hebrew's writer is hinting. He's hinting what he's getting ready to make clear. He's going back and says that from Psalm 8, he's saying that, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? He's speaking of mankind, but in the term son of man, he is hinting of what he's getting ready to make clear. You see, Jesus Christ referred to himself as the son of man. The son of man. And so the writer here is speaking about mankind, about you and me. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him, mankind, a little lower than the angels. Thou hast crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. And that's clear. We read that in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, it is very clear, or is it chapter 1? But there where God created man, and he put everything in subjection under him. Man man was to rule over everything that God has created. That is God's design. And here, the psalmist is, is speaking of that. And now here, the Hebrew writer is reiterating that. But we go on and we have a problem. We have a problem, dear people. Verse 8, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Okay, so everything is subject under man. God created that man control. That man be the one who is in charge of what he has created. But he says, but now we see not yet all things under him. And that's the problem. And you agree. You say, that's right. We don't see that today in everything. We don't see man in control of everything. In fact, man has a hard enough time controlling himself. And he can't. Man cannot even control himself. There's a problem. But then there's the answer. But we see Jesus. Is that not beautiful? We don't see man the way God intended it to be. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. And there is the identification with man. Because in Psalm 8, the psalmist is writing about how man was made a little lower than the angels. And now we have Jesus, who was made a little lower than than the, than the angels. I'm getting too excited. He was made a little lower than the angels in identification with man. the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, or it was, it was through his death that he received glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For, that is the Greek word huper, meaning in the place of. It's different than the Greek word gar, meaning because. This is God, through Jesus Christ, should taste death on behalf of every man. And you say, well, I couldn't. What good would have it done me? How could I? I couldn't save myself. I couldn't go to Calvary. I couldn't die on a cross and save myself and save the world. What do you mean he did it for me, dear people? Jesus took on him the penalty that I deserved. What is the penalty for sin? Death. That is the penalty. Okay? What do we receive through Jesus' death on the cross? We receive life. Okay, so the wages of sin is what? Death. That's what we deserve. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we receive. <laughs> and Jesus Christ went to the cross for in the place of every man and that he took the penalty that was mine, that I deserved. Uh, that, that reality should cause you to bow the knee. It really should. When you, when you realize that you deserve to die And Jesus Christ took that for you. And instead of death, you now experience life. Verse 10, For it became him, or it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain, or the author, of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, it's not saying that Jesus was imperfect and that dying on the cross made him perfect. No, it's not, it's not saying that at all. It's saying that, that through his salvation, through his death on the cross, we are now complete. Salvation is now effective. It speaks of completeness, effectiveness, to make the author, the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, the author is one who writes a story, right? Authors write stories. I find it fascinating that we read in Scripture things like this. Jesus Christ was the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It's it's saying that Jesus Christ, in a sense was slain before the world began. You see, when man sinned, it didn't take God off guard. It wasn't a surprise to him. He had planned this before the world ever began. He had planned. He had the the whole story of salvation and redemption in his plan before man ever existed. He is the author of salvation. He wrote the story Verse 11, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Once again, we are all one family. Jesus Christ, the Son, chose to identify with us, fallen man. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brothers or brethren, saying, and here's another reference, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. Not ashamed. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. And so Jesus Christ is calling us family. We are all a family. We are a part of the family of God. We look to him as our heavenly father. He looks to us as his children. For as much then, verse 14, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, that's you and me, he also himself likewise took part of the same. (laughs) You know, this is just a small detail, but I notice in the King James, we have this, this double. It doesn't just say that he likewise took part of the same, but it says he... Also, himself, likewise, <laughs> took part of the same. It really reiterates that. It really brings it out. I mean, its I would say that's a small detail, but yet it just tells me that, do you get this? He also, did you miss it? Likewise, himself, took part of the same. That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death. Who is that? That is the devil. That word destroy is, is more along the meaning of disarmed. He disarmed him. Or he made him of none effect. Because you're saying, well the devil is still working. I mean I feel it. I feel his temptations. He's trying to get me. I mean I have to battle. And true we know that the devil the devil is still loose in this world. The devil is still working overtime. And so what does it mean that he has destroyed him? It means that he has disarmed him. That that one, he will not claim the victory. His doom is sealed. His doom is sure. You know, verse 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You realize that the natural man has an extreme fear of death. I mean that is that is that is natural for us. No one wants to die. And yet once again the penalty for sin is what? Is death, okay? And natural man knows that because they are a sinner, they deserve to die. And after that the judgment, and natural man is is afraid to die. And that grips people. But Jesus Christ came and disarmed the one who had the power of death, disarmed him, made it of none effect. And now if you are a believer, if you have given uh, your heart to Jesus Christ, then there is no more fear of death. You are not afraid to die. And I remember once in one of our instruction classes, I went around the circle and said, okay, so what what is one thing in your life that is different now that you have become a Christian? And one of the young people said, I'm no longer afraid to die. <laughs> that is beautiful. That is powerful. You know, you see, if you are not afraid to die, the devil has no grip on your life. The devil has no control over you. Because that is his weapon. If you're afraid to die, then you are not completely satisfied in, in experiencing the blessings and power of Jesus Christ and the life he gives. Revelation 12, 11. Three power punches here to the devil. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives even unto the death. They were not afraid to die. That is one of the characteristics of overcomers. They're not afraid to die. Verse 16, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels. I mean, it's, it's not angels that need help. It's not angels That needs salvation. But he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. In other words, that means to make harmonious again. Jesus Christ came to restore man back to God. You see, when when man sinned, he fell away from God. God is that anchor that has always been the same, has always been unchanging. But when man sinned, man fell away from God. And when we fail to give more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, we also drift away from the anchor that is both sure and steadfast. And Jesus Christ came to make things harmonious again, to bring men and women back into a wholesome and healthy and living relationship with the Heavenly Father like it was intended to be from the very beginning. 18, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor to help them that are tempted. Wow, what a a beautiful set of of verses Hebrews 1 and 2. There is so much power there. There is so much joy there. And it all points back to Jesus Christ and for what he has done and is continuing to do for us today. No we are not worthy but yet I trust that you are so grateful and I trust that you will as you experience What God has done as you come face to face with what Jesus Christ has done and what he is doing for mankind that it will cause you to bow the knee and to give surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ and live for him. Let's pray.